Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that it is God, the Holy Spirit, who helps us to understand His Word. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all indwelt from the instant of salvation by the Holy Spirit. But His active ministry in terms of maturing the believer is only operational when we are in fellowship with the Lord. Whenever we sin, the Scripture teaches, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we have a grace recovery procedure. 1 John 1.9 teaches that if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means that there is no sin too great for the grace of God. God made a perfect provision for every single sin every one of us has ever committed or will ever commit in this life. It doesn't matter how horrible it might be, how heinous it might be, how shocking it might be. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history on the cross, and salvation occurs when we put our faith alone in Christ alone. And from that point, we're entered into union with Christ. Nevertheless, whenever we sin, we're out of fellowship, and we need to recover fellowship. So we simply confess or admit our sins to God, recognizing that the provision was made at the cross. So we, at that instant of confession, God forgives us. We are restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can advance in the spiritual life. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer. In case you need to use 1 John 1, 9, sin is a matter of privacy between the believer and the Lord. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have a salvation and a spiritual life that is based completely on grace. It's not up to, or it's not based on who we are, what we have done, but it is based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us at the cross. Therefore, we have a salvation that is ours forever, that can never be lost by any act or deed that we commit because salvation was never dependent upon us in the first place. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet, and it is in your light that we see light. And so we take the time to worship you through the teaching of your word, because it is only as we let our own thinking be evaluated under the uh, piercing light of your word that we come to understand truth, and that we can exchange the thoughts that we have for the thoughts that you have. Father, we pray for this nation. During this time of war against terrorism, we pray for our leaders, for our president, 
for our members of Congress, for the Supreme Court, for military leaders. We pray for their safety, that as these insidious anthrax attacks occur, we pray that those who are in charge of security will be thoughtful, that they will be alert, and they will be able to think uh, creatively think outside the box in order to anticipate the moves of these evil men. Father, we do pray for our military as they are engaged overseas for members of this congregation and those who are on tapes from this congregation who are involved in the military that you would protect them and that you would give them courage even under fire. And Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we might have the courage to honestly face the reality of your word as it as the mirror of your word reveals how we truly are, that we might be willing to respond to what your word teaches, that we might have the courage and the conviction to apply it in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth, seventh book in from Genesis. Ruth chapter 1, we continue our study of this novel, this novelette or short story in the Old Testament that is remarkable in many, many ways. Ruth is, uh, is there a problem with sound? Okay. Uh, Ruth is uh, not contained in the historical books in the arrangement of the Old Testament, but is contained in that subdivision of the Old Testament that the Jews called the Ketuvim. The Old Testament was made up of three divisions, as you recall, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament by Moses, which contain the Mosaic Law. The second section of the Old Testament, according to the Jewish canon, was the Nevi'im, the prophets, that's the early prophets and the latter prophets. And the Ketuvim, excuse me, the Nevi'im often brought a legal charge, a lawsuit from God against the people for their disobedience, according to the Mosaic Law. And then you have the third division, which is the Ketuvim. And the Ketuvim, rather than uh, explicating or rather than uh, simply telling nice stories, is really an illustration of the wise application of the law in life. And there's different types of books that are contained in the Ketuvim. We're studying Daniel on Wednesday night, and the prophecy of Daniel is usually what people focus on. But as we've said on numerous occasions, Daniel is not written in order to satiate mankind's curiosity about the future and God's plan for history, but is designed to give comfort and encouragement to Israel that having been taken out of the land under the fifth cycle of discipline and captivity in Babylon, that God is still in control of human history and God has a future and a plan for Israel. And God is in control even in the most horrendous crises and the most overwhelming chaos. And they, the Jews of, of Israel at that time certainly went through that when they were defeated by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and then taken out of the land. So Daniel and much of the rest of the Ketuvim are written from this wisdom perspective, including Ruth. And one aspect of Ruth that makes it part of wisdom literature is the way it is written. It is written with tremendous style. It, uh, the author often makes his points in extremely subtle ways. So if you read it in the English, there's much that you might miss. And it's important to read it in the Hebrew and read it repetitively and read it slowly in order to catch some of the nuances that the writer intended to emphasize in the original. So we've taken some time to look at the opening 
section where we are introduced to the family of Naomi and to the sorrow of Naomi, where she uh, follows her husband, Elimelech, along with their two sons, Malon and Kilian, and they head to Moab. They are out of line. They are out of the will of God by going to Moab because Israel is under a famine, we're told in the first verse. And the famine we know from the Mosaic Law, from Deuteronomy, is God's judgment upon the nation for their disobedience. And so rather than trusting God in the midst of divine discipline, they seek to solve the problem their own way. They leave the, the promised land, the land that God has given them, the land where God has told them to stay, which is a land of blessing, but because of Israel's disobedience during the period of the judges, is a place of judgment and a place of divine discipline. It is now a, place, it's a famine, and so they leave, but instead of finding prosperity, they find uh, death, they find sorrow, they find disappointment. And it is in the land of Moab that Elimelech dies, and then within the next ten years his two sons die uh, after they are married, and they leave behind three widows, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. And now they have a crisis, a crisis to solve. And we're going to learn that in the, how they solve that crisis. And for a while, they seek, or Naomi seeks to solve the sorrow, the crisis, the heartache in her life through human viewpoint. She seeks to solve it in reaction to God, blaming God. She, seems to, she brings a charge against God, attacking God's faithfulness and his love. She wonders if God, a loving God, can really be there if these horrible things have happened to her in her life. And so one of the major issues addressed in this short book is why a good God allows bad things to happen to allegedly good people. And I have addressed that in the last two Sundays in, under the category of undeserved suffering. And now we come to verse 6 and her attempt to resolve the problem that she faces. We're told in verse 6, then she arose, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord, capital, uppercase Lord, meaning Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, that's the emphasis here, that Yahweh had visited his people by giving them, that's corrected translation, by giving them food. The clause construction here in the uh, original Hebrew indicates that the first part of the sentence is the independent clause reporting that Naomi is now going to take whatever steps are necessary in order to return to the promised land. She's basically heard that it is now a place of blessing rather than suffering. It's now a place where God is feeding the people rather than holding off the rains in a drought. And so she is going to return hoping that in some way she is going to get a few crumbs from the table and somehow a few blessings might trickle her way. We're going to see that her state of mind is still a state of grief, a state of, of depression because she doesn't understand the doctrines related to undeserved suffering and she does not re, re, is not relating that to her own life. We're told that she arose. And the emphasis in all of these verbs is on Naomi. So from the viewpoint of the writer... The focus, if this were a drama, if you were watching this on stage, the spotlight would be on Naomi. The, the daughters-in-law at this point are just there behind her. You, you, haven't really, you don't really know too much about them. You, we haven't heard them speak. 
They are simply window dressing at this point, and the spotlight is on Naomi and her problems. This book is really about Naomi, as I have said, and not Ruth. She arose that she might return, for she had heard. That's the emphasis of the passage here. She had heard. Now, this is the irony that's present in this passage, and it's this book and that the writer wants us to pay attention to. Naomi, at some level, realizes that God has blessed the nation, and despite her own misery and her suffering, she hopes that she's going to get a few blessings. But nevertheless, her faith is shaky. Her faith is weary. Her faith lacks any sense of certainty, any sense of confidence, and her hope is not the confident expectation that is normally expressed by the word hope in Scripture, but it's more the idea that we have in the English word hope, and that is just some sort of, of optimistic, no matter how shallow that optimism was, some optimistic expectation that somehow something will happen. So she is going to go back into the land. So we're told then in verse 7 that she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, the backdrop for understanding the conversation that is coming up is the concept of leveret marriage, the concept of leveret marriage, and that's the, that's the background to the entire book, and everything that happens with Ruth and Boaz is based on the concept of leveret marriage. So we need to take a minute and review what the Scripture says and teaches about levered marriage. The word levered comes from the Latin word levere, which means a brother-in-law. Levere refers to a brother-in-law. And this was God's gracious provision in the Mosaic Law in order to preserve the family inheritance. The emphasis in the Mosaic Law often is on the family as divine institution number three. We have studied divine institutions, and the divine institutions are established by God for all human society, believer or unbeliever, in order to perpetuate and preserve that society. When those divine institutions are violated, when they break down, that culture is going to break down and eventually fragment and implode. First divine institution is human responsibility. Second divine institution is marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. It is not between members of the same sex. Once that is broken down and once you allow same-sex unions and same-sex marriages and you legitimize them with law, then you begin to fragment the society even more, and that usually leads to fragmentation of the third divine institution, which is family. Fourth divine institution was human government, and the fifth divine institution is the establishment of independent nations. God established independent nations at the Tower of Babel, and all human attempts at internationalism uh, will always be thwarted by God until he allows the final figure of evil in history to appear, the Antichrist. At which, point, at which point God will destroy the international alliance that he brings together at the Battle of Armageddon, and it will not be until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming that there is a true one-world government that is workable. So every attempt from the League of Nations, United Nations, and whatever else there may be at internationalism is always doomed to failure because it's built on a faulty a faulty premise. So this relates to the defense of the 
family, the third divine institution. And the Leveret Law is laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. There we read, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her brother's brother shall not be married, uh, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Verse 6, And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name, that is the dead brother's name, may not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now, a couple of things we need to note about this because we will see this applied in the book of Ruth. First of all, the widow is not to marry outside the family. Now we see that Naomi really doesn't understand this principle yet, so she doesn't know a whole lot about the Word of God, and she doesn't understand much about the Mosaic Law, because she's going to try to get Ruth and Naomi to go home. But then she's treating them as Gentiles and not as Jews, because, of course, they are uh, Moabites. second thing we note is that the brother-in-law was to take her as his wife, and his duty was to impregnate her so that she could have a son to raise up as the son of his dead brother. And the purpose of that was to remind the nation that the promised land was given to Israel as their perpetual inheritance. And the word inheritance has as its primary connotation possession. This was to be their possession, and it was broken down tribe by tribe, and each tribe was further broken down, and each tribal allotment was further broken down into... uh, Uh, families and clans so that each individual family had a piece of land that was theirs and it was theirs in perpetuity so much so that if they got there's a provision in the law that even if they came into financial straits and they went into debt and they had to sell off the land that during the year of jubilee which occurred every 50th year all land would revert to its original owner that way you never lost the family land and that everything is built around support of the family. And so this would allow the family name to continue and the family inheritance to continue in the family, even in the case of of an early death among one of the brothers. Now, some think there's a contradiction here between Leviticus uh, 18.16 and Leviticus 20, verse 21, which forbid the brother-in-law from going into his sister-in-law, in other words, having sexual intercourse with the sister-in-law. And that the difference is that in those passages, the, brother-in-law, the brother-in-law is still alive. There's been no death yet. So that's just prohibiting uh, adultery uh, among family members. And it would also prevent a brother who is, let's say, impotent or 
infertile and unable to produce a male heir from trying to uh, get his brother, solve the problem by having his brother come in and having a performing some sort of levered action uh, without his being dead. So this was only to go into effect if the brother died and died childless. Refusal of the obligation by the brother-in-law was considered a slight on the family and a slight on the nation because it showed that he had very little regard for the family, very little regard for the inheritance that God had given them. And that is why you have this uh, interesting ceremony at the end called the Chalisa, which is where the, they go before the elders at the town gate, which is where the local uh, magistrate would be, where they would have the, conduct civil trials and where uh, decisions would be made. And if they came to the, the elders there and he said, no, I'm not going to assume my responsibility, recognizing that it was his responsibility, then the woman was to come and spit in his face, indicating that this was something that was uh, irresponsible. This was something that was looked down upon by society. And she would pull his sandal off of his foot. So this sandal removal uh, ceremony is what would then end the situation, and she would then be free to remarry whomever she wanted. So the first option that was almost that was mandated was to go to the brother-in-law. So that's the background for understanding the conversations that are going to come up and the events that are going to take place uh, following this. So in verse 7 we read that, that Naomi departs and her daughters-in-law go with her. They're almost an afterthought in the way the text mentions them. And they begin to return. They're on their way back. And they've, they've been in Moab and they have to head a little, a little north and west to cross the fords of the Jordan. And as they go along the way, Naomi's beginning to think about what's, what's about to happen. She now has these two daughters-in-law who are Moabites. And a Moabite was... was looked down upon by the Jews because they weren't Jewish. They weren't in covenant relationship with God. And furthermore, the Moabites were those perverted people, descendants from the incest of Lot with his two daughters. And they had been antagonistic to the Jews when the Jews had come up on their way to the promised land. They had refused entry into the land. And then furthermore, they had followed the uh, advice of that that, uh, false prophet Balaam that uh, the way to destroy Israel was to get them to intermarry with the beautiful young women of Moab. So they were involved in, the women of Moab were involved in seducing Israel in order to destroy them. So, so there's not a positive attitude towards the uh, Moabites, especially the Moabite women in Israel. So Naomi doesn't really want this baggage with her, and she's afraid that there's going to be some problems when she gets back into Israel with having these two Moabite women with her. So she tries to, she tries to discourage their presence. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law in verse 8, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and dealt with me. Now, this is a crucial statement for understanding what's going on in this, in this book. One thing you don't see in this book is much of a mention of God. You don't see God directly intervening in the affairs of man. Because this is a story of what's happening at the human level, and God is clearly active and involved, but he's 
he's working behind the scenes. He is like, if this were a play, a drama on, on the stage, then it is God who's the stage manager. And it's God who's directing all of the events behind the scenes. But you as a member of the audience don't really see God, but you know that he is the one who is bringing about all of these, all of these events. And this is introduced to us here by the terminology that's used by, by Naomi at this point, And it shows that it's beginning to give an insight into Naomi's own mental attitude. And the key word we need to look at is the word that is translated in the New American Standard, deal kindly. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She uses the Hebrew word chesed. The Hebrew word chesed is one of the most pregnant theological terms in the Old Testament in relationship to God. It describes his faithful, loyal love. Sometimes it's translated mercy, sometimes kindness, sometimes steadfastness. It's a key word that's used again and again and again in the Psalms, but it emphasizes God's steadfast loyalty to his people because he is in covenant relationship with them. It is not a word like the the Hebrew word ahav, which means to love, which is roughly comparable to our word for love. But it is a word that emphasizes God's faithfulness to his covenant despite the unfaithfulness of Israel. It is the fact that God always acts the same way. God always performs the same actions that he has promised to act, no matter how disobedient, no matter how rebellious his people might be. And see, when Naomi uses this word, what's going on in the background, the irony here is she, she wants the Lord to deal kindly, deal with, with, deal with Orpah and Ruth in Hesed, but she doesn't think that God has dealt with her in Hesed. God has not been faithful to her. God has taken her husband and her sons from her. God has left her destitute. And and she's going to indicate that as she's given deep thought to this situation as a widow with two daughters-in-law who are widows, she is in a hopeless condition because she doesn't see someone on the horizon that can fulfill the leverage responsibility. And she doesn't believe there's someone there. And that was one of the reasons God also allowed for the or made provision for the levered marriage is because in that agrarian society, there was no real welfare system to take care of widows and orphans. God made some provision for them in the third tithe that was taken uh, every third year for the widows and orphans. And uh, he also made some provision for them in what we will see as the backdrop of chapter 2 in the gleaning in the fields because the uh, the farmers were told not to harvest every uh grain of wheat, not to harvest every ear of corn, but they were to leave the corners of the fields unharvested so that those who were without food could come and, and, and harvest that for themselves. So there was a clearly a provision for those who could not take care of themselves in the Mosaic Law, and part of that was the leveret marriage, that if a woman was left destitute as a widow, then her brother-in-law could marry her and she would be taken care of and have some level of financial security for the rest of her life. But Naomi does not see this on the horizon at all, and so she thinks that God has dealt unkindly with her. God has not been chesed, as he has promised, and she is going to bring a charge about God. This is, this is what underlies this. As soon as we read this, we notice that she says, May the Lord have chesed with you as you have had chesed with the dead and with me. 
And notice the comparison there. She's saying, may God be faithful like you've been faithful. She's not saying, may you be faithful because God is faithful. The standard in this statement is not God, it's the two women. And so she's wanting God to be at least as faithful to her as they've been to her two dead sons. So right away we see that there's a hidden uh, uh, indictment here of the way God has treated her and the two sons. Another thing that we need to point out from Chesed is that this tells us something about what sanctification, that is the spiritual life and spiritual growth, is all about. We learn from this that these are, from everything that we know about Moabite, the Moabites and the women in Moab, these are unique young ladies. There is something profound about them because as opposed to the normal picture in Scripture of the Moabite women as being seductresses who are trying to destroy Israel through, through fornication and adultery with the Jews, these young women are not, have been honorable, they have a measure of integrity, and they have, as, as a matter of fact, been chesed. This is a high compliment, a high praise. And it stands in contrast with what one would expect of the standard Moabite behavior. So we must ask the correct question, why is it that these girls are chesed girls? What has given rise, what, what has made the difference in their life? And we can only suggest from what Naomi goes on to say in Ruth's later response is that to whatever level of, uh, of uh, doctrine they have understood, whatever level of understanding they have about God and the plan of salvation, I would suggest that they have at least become saved in an Old Testament sense, following the Old Testament gospel, which was to anticipate the provision of Messiah, to believe that God would provide salvation and would take care of man's sin problem. In the Old Testament, believers were saved the same way they're saved in the New Testament. And just that in the Old Testament, they anticipated the coming of a Savior. And in the New Testament, we look back to the completed work of the Savior on the cross. In the Old Testament, they had all of the sacrifices which were foreshadowings and pictures of what Jesus Christ would do. They had the Passover lamb, which was a lamb without spot or blemish. So that when Jesus came at the first advent, John the Baptist saw him come and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when the Jews heard that, they knew that he was speaking about the Passover lamb that was without spot or blemish and that he was making application to Jesus, that Jesus was the fulfillment of that Old Testament type. And so in the Old Testament, believers anticipated, they looked forward to the ultimate provision of God. At times they had a more clear, at times a less clear view of just how that would be fulfilled. As time went by and God gave more and more revelation, and the, during the progress of revelation in the Old Testament, they had a greater, they, they, their understanding of what that salvation would look like and what the Messiah would do became clearer and clearer. But at this early stage, it would have been a little less clear, but they knew that God in his faithfulness had promised a solution to sin. And so that's how they were saved. And, and apparently, I would suggest we can't be dogmatic at this point, but the fact that these girls are called chesed girls, and this is a word that usually is applied to believers and not unbelievers, and it is a word that emphasizes that they have some level of a capacity for real love, would suggest that they are believers. 
Now, this is important to understand that the key concept of love in the Old Testament is expressed by this word chesed and not by the other word ahav. Ahav is too often in Hebrew, as it is in English, just a generic concept for love or for attraction. And love is often abused because love puts its emphasis on the object of the love and not on the one who does the loving. And whenever you have someone say, I love you, uh, usually they are saying that because they find something nice, something attractive, something uh, admirable in the object of their love. But the danger is that as soon as that attraction is gone, as soon as age sets in, as soon as weight comes on, as soon as uh, that person does something horrific or uh, obnoxious, then love goes out the window. Love in the Bible is not something that's based on emotion or sentiment. It's something that is based on decision and it's based on integrity. And Chesed emphasizes that God's love is based on his integrity so that when the object of his love, which is Israel, goes out under apostasy and disobeys God and breaks the law time after time after time after time, God continues to deal with them and faithfully, he continues to be faithful to his covenant even though Israel is unfaithful. But in their disobedience, God has to judge them. He has to discipline them even to the point of taking them out of the land. And eventually he will restore them to the land and fulfill all of his promises to them. But God is a God who in his love also, also disciplines. So this word hesed is foundational to understanding God and understanding the Old Testament. A couple of points that we need to make in relationship to this is, first of all, every person is born with some natural capacity or potential for love. But it's only when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are regenerated that you have the capacity to truly understand what love is. That's why the Scriptures come along and make the point in the, in the New Testament that believers are not to marry unbelievers. For what fellowship hath light with darkness, the Apostle Paul says. And that is because they have nothing in common, because the believer can have a capacity for love, but the unbeliever will not have a capacity for love. And capacity for love doesn't come simply because you, you are a believer. That brings you the potential to increase your capacity, but it increases because of the doctrine that's in your soul. As we contemplate the cross, as we think about the cross, as we focus on everything that was involved in Jesus Christ coming to earth, becoming a man, taking on flesh, that 100% deity took on 100% humanity. He suffered. He was tested. He went to the cross where he went through an unimaginable, unimaginable torture and pain as he bore the sins as perfect Humanity, sinless humanity, bore the sins of every single person in human history. He suffered far beyond anything that you and I can ever imagine or that you and I can ever think about. And yet, he did that not because of who and what we are, but because of who and what he is. It was based on his character and his provision, and that's love. And that's best expressed in passages like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, and Romans 5.7, But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion to him, while we were still sinners... 
God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. He paid the penalty, not because of who and what we are, not because God saw something wonderful and attractive about mankind. He knew that man was created in his image. He had created them in his image, but that image was now marred because of sin. But God, in his faithfulness, would do whatever it took and whatever it cost. That involved sacrifice. That involved Jesus Christ going through a situation where he, as the Lord of the universe, was ridiculed and abused and maligned by the Roman soldiers. He was about to die for the very sins that they were committing against him at that point. And here he was, the almighty sovereign God of the universe, and he took it. Why? Because in love sometimes we have to be vulnerable. In love sometimes we're in situations where we have to call upon the greatest reserves of humility in order to last out through the situation. And that can only come when there is integrity in the soul. So only the believer can develop that level of love, that kind of genuine capacity for love. And if a believer marries an unbeliever, you are just asking for trouble. Furthermore, if you're a believer and your spouse is not positive to doctrine, I mean hungry for it as you are, then you're also asking for trouble. Because, as the Scripture points out, how can two men walk together unless they are agreed? And if you don't, not both in marriage, not both operating on the same ultimate standard, then you're going to constantly have conflicts, and that marriage is on the road to disaster. Every person's born with a capacity to love, but only believers can fully develop that capacity because only believers have access to understanding and implementing true integrity, which comes from learning doctrine and applying it in their lives. In the Old Testament, though, they had a limited capacity for love, not like in the New Testament. This is seen in the comparison between Leviticus 18:19 and Jesus' statement, in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, in Leviticus 18, we're told that, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That was the standard. Every, every Jew was to love his neighbor as himself, but that neighbor might be a believer or an unbeliever, but the standard for that love was as you love yourself. And how you love yourself is selfishness. It's, it's a low standard. It, it, we put ourselves first, and so... The emphasis in that mandate is to put others first. Don't just be self-absorbed and filled with arrogance. But in John chapter 13, Jesus gave a new commandment, a commandment of a different kind, a new commandment to the church age. And it's not a repetition of Leviticus 18.19. It is a new commandment. He said that we are to love one another. That is, the object is no longer everybody, believer or unbeliever. The object is one another, other believers, as I have loved you. Christ now becomes the standard, the standard of Christ's love to the believer demonstrated on the cross is the standard for the believer's love for one another. And that is a high standard that cannot be accomplished in our own energy and the power of the flesh. It can only be accomplished when we are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And that's why love is mentioned as the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, uh, 24 and 25 or excuse me, 22 and 23. Now, Hesed in the Old Testament has an important tradition. We need to look at a couple of verses that emphasize Hesed in the Old Testament. 
For example, Exodus chapter 15, verse 13. In thy loving kindness, this is Moses talking to God. He says, In thy loving kindness thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed. In thy strength thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. And there he recognizes that it is God's chesed that is the foundation for his gracious action in delivering the Jews from slavery in Egypt. Furthermore, in the midst of the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, we're told that God shows loving kindness, chesed, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So he emphasizes how he expresses that love exceptionally to those who love him, love God, and are obedient to the Mosaic law. Exodus 34, 6, Then the Lord God passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So chesed relates to the foundation of the essence and attributes of God. It is key to his integrity. Exodus 34, 7 goes on to say, Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This shows that his chesed love, which is based on his own character, is the basis for the forgiveness of sins and the solution to the sin problem. Furthermore, it is also the basis for God's judgment upon the guilty and those who reject his grace provision of salvation. That's why when people say, how can a loving God allow something like this to happen? I said that the real question is, uh, why not? Why shouldn't a loving God allow horrible things to happen to people who are sinners, creatures who are created with free will and who can make any decision they want to and yet they turn their back on him? So God in his chesed love not only has the basis for salvation and redemption, but it's also the basis for judgment and condemnation. And see, too often that question, how can a loving God allow things like this to happen, assumes has a, has a very... Uh, uh, shallow view of love, love, genuine love. As a, just think about parental love, true, genuine parental love not only does good things for children, but when those children are out of line because that love recognizes the dangers that that will present over time, that genuine love from a parent is also going to discipline them and punish them. So love is not this shallow, restricted idea often presented in our society. Another passage to look at is Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. So there His loving kindness goes on for eternity in relationship to the covenant. So from what we can infer from this, this use of the word in relationship to, to Ruth and Orpah, is that they have an exceptional character and they are, the suggestion is that they are believers and have some level of doctrine in their soul that they have been applying in their marriage relationship. Now let's go on and see what else Naomi has to say in this initial conversation. In verse 9 she says, May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. 
Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. This is a horrendous time for these women. They've gone through difficult times together. They've gone through the loss of Elimelech and the loss of Melon and Killian, and that has brought them together. They have survived the difficult loss of their husbands by supporting one another, and now they are being torn apart because they have to go on and survive. So, so this is a, a, an intense time of emotion. May the, and, and Naomi says, May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she is giving them permission to, to go home, to go back, to, to remarry, and to try to raise up a family with a new, new husband. But they refuse. At this point, they're steadfast. They're going to stick with her. They say, No, we'll return with you to your people. Verse 11, Naomi starts her second plea. She's, going, she's not put off by this, but she's going to uh, strengthen her arguments. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Yet have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? In other words, she recognizes that I'm, not, I'm too old now. Naomi, by this time, is probably 50. She's beyond the childbearing age. And she recognizes that she's not going to have any more sons. And even if she did, if these girls waited another 10 years, they're, they're, it's been 10 years since they were married probably. Uh, let's say they got married when they were 15 or 16. They're in their 20s now. If they're going to wait another uh, 15 years before new sons grew up and came of age, they would then be past almost past childbearing age. So they're, they're, it's useless to hang around. Naomi says, I, there's nothing left in me. I'm empty. There's nothing for you with me. Go home. I'm not going to have any more sons. There's no, uh, no one fulfill, to fulfill leverage, uh, marriage responsibilities. Go home. Verse 12, she says, Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It's, it, it's harder in the... It's unfortunate that the New American Standard translated this word as harder because the key word in this section is bitterness. And what she is actually saying is, it is bitter for me. And this reveals what's really going on in her soul. She has become embittered because of what has taken place. And that's one of the most devastating things anyone can do is get involved in bitterness in reaction to any kind of adversity that goes on in life. But that's exactly what has happened to her. She's become an empty, bitter, lonely old woman, and she has nothing to look forward to, and that's one reason she wants to get rid of these two girls. She may recognize that at some level and know that there's just nothing with it. There's even a subtext here of self-pity, that there's nothing for me. Y'all go on back. Don't come with me. Don't come with me. There's nothing for me. God's hand's against me, and he's not going to give me anything good, so you go away. So in verse 14 we read that at least this had some impact on Orpah. And they lifted up their voices again, and they weep. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. That is, she kisses her goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Now this brings us to an understanding of the doctrine of bitterness. So we're going to take some time to look at the doctrine of bitterness because this is what underlies Naomi's behavior at this point. She's empty, she's frustrated, she's alone, she's blaming God, and she's become a bitter old woman. So what do we learn about bitterness from the Scriptures? 
First point, bitterness is a reaction sin. It's a reaction sin. It's a reaction to adversity, to loss, to negative circumstances, to not having things go the way we think they should go. See, man wants to act like God. He thinks he knows what's best and how his life should go. And that's what Naomi's thinking at this time. Lord, I can't imagine any reason whatsoever where it would be better for me to lose a husband and, and, and two sons. And yet she doesn't understand the historical flow. As, I, as she's complaining, as she's wrapped up in self-pity here, as she's thinking that she's empty, there's no hope, there's no meaning, what she doesn't realize, see, you and I know this because we know the story, and what she doesn't realize is standing there next to her, weeping and crying on her shoulder, is the future hope of Israel. Because it is through Ruth that God is eventually, in the line of Ruth, that, that God is eventually going to bring the Messiah. So because she doesn't have a divine perspective, because she's rejected doctrine, she's just focusing on herself, and in self-absorption, she has gone into self-pity, and all she can do is weep and wail about her own sorrow and not recognize that there's a greater good that is being worked out in the plan and purposes of God, and the blessing that's going to come out of that is ultimately a blessing for their family when, when Ruth and Boaz eventually marry and raise up a child to her husband, And that grandchild of Naomi's then is going to be the grandfather of David who will bring in the greatest blessing to the nation, ultimately through the seed of David, the son of David, the greater son of David, who is Jesus Christ. So because of her rejection of doctrine and because of her focus on herself, she's just reacting. And she thinks that she has a better plan and that God certainly should not have allowed any of this to go wrong, to go to happen in her life. Secondly, bitterness assumes that you're right and someone else is wrong. Bitterness assumes that you are right and someone else is wrong. In this case, Naomi assumes that she has a better plan and that God is wrong. Bitterness is a rejection of personal responsibility and a rejection of the sovereignty of God in our lives. It is a rejection of God's plan and purposes. It is to forget that Romans 8.28, God says, But God works all things together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. So bitterness rejects personal responsibility and is a rejection of the sovereignty of God. Which leads to point three, that bitterness, therefore, is the product of arrogance. Bitterness, therefore, is a product of arrogance and the sin nature. As such, it leads to soul fragmentation, and eventually works itself out in the fragmentation of relationships around us. Bitterness is the product of arrogance. It is self-absorption to the max. Hebrews 12.15 warns us, See to it that no one comes short, that means to forget, to fall away from, to quit operating on the grace of God. Because, see, that's exactly what happens as Naomi forgets the wonderful grace of God that even at that point is making provision for her. How is God's grace making provision for her? Well, rain has returned to the promised land. She's heard about it. God's grace appeared to her in the midst of her sorrow. She hears that there's no longer famine in the land. And then God is going to bring her back to her people, and he is going to... uh, fill her and bless her, turn her sorrow into happiness and turn the cursing into blessing. But she's forgotten the grace of God. So we're warned in Hebrews 12:15. see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. See, it defiles all those around us. It creates fragmentation in relationships. 
Point number four. Arrogance functions on the four arrogant skills. Arrogance functions on the four arrogant skills, which we have studied again and again. Self-absorption. As soon as we start reacting, what are we looking at? We're looking at what this action does to me. We become absorbed with our own misery, our own pain. Self-absorption then leads to self-indulgence. We start indulging our emotions. We start indulging our anger. We start indulging our jealousy, our reaction. Whatever it may be, we begin to indulge ourselves. And that leads to self-justification. After we've been in self-indulgence for a while, we have to justify our whining and our crying. So we uh, start saying that good is, uh, bad is good and good is bad. And we start distorting our value system. And then that leads to self-deception. And the believer in bitterness is a believer in self-deception. James 3.14 warns us, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, that is, in the mentality of your soul, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Bitterness is a lie against the truth. What we are saying in bitterness is basically my plan is better than God's plan. And because God is uh, so ignorant and God is so callous toward me, then I'm just going to reject God and blame everything on him. And it's nothing more than blind arrogance. Point five, a bitter person always lies to himself. See, he's in self-deception. He always lies to himself, and he doesn't know the truth or tell the truth because bitterness warps the judgment, and the sin nature destroys objectivity. Bitterness warps the judgment. A little typo there. Bitterness warps the judgment, and the sin nature destroys Objectivity. When we're operating on the sin nature, we're operating from a self-absorption position, and that is nothing more than subjectivity, and we cannot truly understand what is going on around us. We can't evaluate the problem, and therefore we cannot accurately apply the God's solutions, the stress busters, or ten problem-solving devices that we have studied. Point number six. Bitterness then motivates a complex of other sins. Bitterness motivates a complex of other sins, including implacability, hatred, uh, revenge motivation, and revenge. All of these tend to go together. Implacability, hatred, revenge motivation, revenge, jealousy, anger, all go along in this bitterness complex. This is seen in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. This should not characterize the life of the believer. Point number seven, bitterness then leads to self-induced misery. If you are a bitter person, you are on the road to self-destruction. The only person bitterness hurts is you. It destroys your soul, fragments your soul, and it will absolutely wipe out your capacity for blessing and happiness. And if you continue down the path of bitterness, then you will end up with Naomi, like Naomi. And when blessing is available, you will be so blind to it that you won't even see it. And you'll just keep right on whining and crying about the problems in your life. If you're bitter, there is recovery from bitterness. First of all, it involves confession, 1 John 1, 9. If we admit or acknowledge our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, the prophet Isaiah expressed it this way in Isaiah 38:17. He said, Lo, for my own welfare I had great bitterness. It is thou, O God, who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, for thou hast cast 
all my sins behind thy back. He began by focusing on his own problems, and he was bitter. And then he recognized God's solution for his sins and God's grace, and because he understood God's grace, he confessed his sins, and then he realized and put it, realized God's grace provision and put it all behind him. Now let's get back to looking at the dynamics with, with uh, Naomi and now Ruth. Orpah's left. She's gone. She's off the stage, and we won't see her again. And now the relationship focuses on this unique, profound relationship between the daughter-in-law, Ruth, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Verse 15, then she, that is, uh, Naomi says, Behold, your sister-in-law's gone back. Why don't you? She's thinking, why don't you go back? I mean, there's nothing for me. Behold, your sister-in-law's gone back to her people and her gods. I want you to notice that because there's a parallelism there. It's almost a hendiadis, that there's a connection, an intimate connection between people and gods. And, and unfortunately, I don't have the time to go into this, but I'm just going to give you something to think about. And that is the relationship between a culture and religion. Every culture at its core is religious. Think about what's involved in culture. In any given culture, you have, you have a value system. You have, based on that value system, a system of ethics and a system of law. Any value system, see, law is ultimately based on a value system, and that value system, in its turn, is based on the, an ultimate view of reality. And that ultimate view of reality, whether it is theistic, whether it is atheistic, whether it is naturalistic, whether it is... Uh, pantheistic or polytheistic, whatever that ultimate view of reality is, that ultimate view of reality says something about gods, God, or no gods. So ultimately, ultimate reality then is expressed in some sort of religious belief system. And that religious belief system then affects the values, the ethics, and the laws of a given culture. So people then who are living within a particular culture, if you live within a particular culture, then you, as you live on the basis of the mores, on the standards, the laws of that land, you are living on the basis of the ultimate religious beliefs of that culture. Now, a lot of people may not understand that because in America we're rather sheltered and we live in a society that has been historically based on a Judeo-Christian ethic. Now, that's come under assault in the last 40 years with the removal of prayer in the schools and the removal of um, and, and the decision of, of Roe, Roe v. Wade. And no matter what your position is on the origin of human life, and we all know the position of this church, and that is that, that life, ultimate human life, doesn't begin until birth. But what happens in the womb is not just a mass of cells. It's not like a wart. It's not like some, some mole on the skin. It's not just a mass of cells. It is ultimately destined to be a human being in the image and likeness of God. All things being equal and everything going the way they should, this is going to be an ensouled infant. But you go back and you look at Roe versus Wade, and the basic argumentation there was a shift. And it was a shift to treat what was happening in the womb as nothing more than a mass of, of biological cells. It was no, no different from any tumor, any wart, anything else that might be happening on a person's body. 
And yet the Bible has a different view of that because it's viewed as potential human life. That's why uh, you know, people sometimes think that because we hold to a position uh, that life begins at birth, that that automatically affirms abortion. It doesn't. Those are two totally different and separate issues. And they have been understood that way until the emotionalism of the past 30, 35 years over this whole abortion issue. But the Roe versus Wade decision was a radical change in the way life was looked at legally in this culture. And that's that really where people start seeing the, the advent of culture wars. Uh, back in the 60s when they took, when they took prayer out of, out of the schools, historically the nation had always allowed and stood for the presence of God in the classroom. And it was only after World War II that that became to be questioned. Now, there's a lot of factors that are going on there, and, and I'm not exactly sure that that was a bad decision from one perspective because if you ever read that decision and read the prayer that the, uh, I think it was the Board of Education in New York had written that all the students were to pray, I don't know that any of us would want our children praying that prayer. So there's other issues, but, but underlying it was a secular viewpoint to get God out of culture. Just interesting that since September 11th, we have people talking about God and praying to God in all levels of, of the country, in the Senate, in the House, in schools. And everybody wants everybody to pray for the country, and nobody's getting too concerned except for a few uh, uh, ACLU types on the extreme liberal fringe who are beginning to get a little upset about it. But all of a sudden, when we're in a disaster, it's okay to have God back in the classroom. just shows the ultimate uh, problem there. But what I want to point out here is that there is a connection. The writer here recognizes a connection between a culture and the gods behind that culture. And that when Orpah goes back, she is going back, even though she's a believer, she's going to be living in a pagan environment, and she's really opting for second best. As opposed to that, there is Ruth, Ruth who understands Chesed, wants more of Chesed, and she wants to know more about the God of Chesed. She wants to have a deeper relationship with God, and she expresses this in a remarkable statement in Ruth 6, 1, 16, and 17. And frequently you've probably heard this at a wedding, which is a total... I'm talking about ripping something out of context. This has nothing to do with marriage. It has nothing to do with a wedding, and it has nothing to do with the love for a man for a woman. It is merely a statement of commitment from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. And uh, I, I always wince whenever somebody comes along and sings some song about this at some wedding. Just rips scripture, scripture out of context. Verse 16 reads, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Now, this is a remarkable literary structure. It's called a chiasm. In a chiasm, if you, if you look at the line here, it's like one side of an X. And the letter chi in Greek is the letter X, and that's what this is named for. And it is a literary structure designed to put on display the clause or phrase or words that are in the center. So this whole structure, notice the parallelism. In the first strophe, she says, Do not urge me to leave you, to turn back from following you. And the last one emphasizes the same thing, that only death will separate you and me. In the second standard, 
uh, stanzas. She says, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will go. She's talking about a location. And the second to last is also talking about the location, the location of her death and burial. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. But the centerpiece is this statement. Your people, and literally in the Hebrew, there's no verb there. It's literally, uh, it's very intense because of the ellipsis of the verb. Your people, my people, your God, my God. She is going to take, uh, wrap her arms around the culture of Israel and the God of Israel. And this shows that not only is she a believer, but she is a believer that is extremely positive to God, and she wants everything that God has for her, and therefore she wants to be in the place where there will be the greatest blessing. And under the Mosaic Covenant, the place of greatest blessing was in Israel. Now, that's not true anymore. I don't want everybody trying to move off to Israel. That's not true anymore. The place today in the church age of greatest blessing is, first of all, to be in Christ. And that comes by faith alone in Christ alone. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And secondly, by being in fellowship to the Lord and learning doctrine and advancing to spiritual maturity. That's the place of greatest blessing today. And that's where Ruth wanted to be, was, was with Naomi in Israel. And then the chapter concludes by saying, When she, that is Naomi, saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. This is end the end of Act 1. Next time we'll come back and we'll see that the action intensify as Ruth goes about trying to take care of the sustenance of the family and God provides a remarkable deliverance for her and for Naomi with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time to study your word this morning for the encouragement we receive and the warnings we receive about the dangers of bitterness. Father, we pray for anyone who's here this morning that's unsure of their eternal destiny and uncertain of their salvation. Scripture says that we can know that we have eternal life because we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and rose again the third day. Salvation is not based on who you are or what you've done. Salvation is not based on some moral reformation of the life. You don't have to make yourself savable. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to engage in any ritual. Scripture says that all that is necessary is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray for those who are already saved here, the believers, that they would respond positively to what they have learned today as they apply it in their lives under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.